Well, last Sunday was the first Sunday of Advent, the Advent season, and Harry preached on the, the theme of hope out of 1 Peter. Well, this is the second Sunday, as so we lit the second candle, and this Sunday in Advent directs our attention to the theme of peace. And uh, we like the idea of peace around Christmas time. You know, it fits in very well with our typical depictions of the nativity of Jesus' birth, you know, kind of like one up on the screen like that. There's, when, when we imagine the birth of Christ, I bet most, if not all of us, picture this very peaceful and perfect little scene. Mary and Joseph calmly admiring the sweet, sleeping baby Jesus who was, you know, just swaddled just ever so perfectly in the blanket. We sing the song, Silent Night, and we sing, Holy infant so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace. Like, it just sounds like such a peaceful moment. And there is something wonderful and peaceful about a little baby sleeping. I know for us, the first year of Ella's life, she did not sleep all the way through the night. So that year, not counting that one. But when she did start sleeping through the night, and just you put her down, and you just admire your sleeping child. There's something about that that just brings to our hearts the sense of just peace and bliss. But peace is more than just this Christmas card photo version of the nativity. And that's what we're going to focus on today. Um, So before we read, will you join me in prayer? Eternal God, we find ourselves in this season of Advent waiting for the day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus, while also anticipating the day when you will come again to make all things new. We know that you are Emmanuel, God with us, here and now, and so we look to you for guidance, for wisdom, and strength to live with meaning and purpose. May we feel your presence as we continue in our worship of you by the reading and proclamation of your holy word. Amen. Well, our reading today is from a familiar passage, uh, especially for this time of year. It's from Isaiah. And just to put a little perspective on this passage, I'm pulling up um, the timeline that I showed last time I preached from a couple weeks ago. If y'all put the timeline up on the screen. There we go. All right. So we're looking. So there's Isaiah the prophet. And if you go... It's hard to keep this thing steady. So 722 BC, that's when the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom. So Isaiah, at least in our passage right here, is we can we can date him pretty pretty closely. Because also in this passage of Isaiah, we know which king of Judah that Isaiah is confronting, that is he's given this message to, and that's King Ahaz. And we know that King Ahaz reigned from roughly 732 B.C. to 716 B.C. And we see Isaiah giving a message of warning to King Ahaz that the Assyrians are about to invade, conquer, and destroy Israel. But as a part of this kind of announcement of of judgment... There's also this message of a future hope. Because God will send a new king. 
And in chapter 7 of Isaiah, we hear this message where it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. And then later in this same kind of section of Isaiah in chapter 11, we hear more about this future king. It says, A shoot shall come up from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. The, the image that Isaiah uses here for Israel is like, it's, it's like a tree. But that tree is about to be cut down to the stump. And out of this stump, one day will sprout a new shoot. But this new shoot will come from the line of Jesse, which if you know uh, about King David's life, that's also the line of David. And so this, this, these words in even the first chapters of Isaiah are pointing us to a future hope. And in and, and chapter 11, he continues and he says of this, this future hope, the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And all this context is, is pretty important. And I wanted to also mention in the timeline, so remember that this happens over 700 years before Christ is born. A long time. I mean, what was 700 years ago? What was happening? Anybody know? No. <laughs> I mean, what was that, the, the 1300s? We don't know. You might know a few little things about it. Or what if we thought about 700 years in the future? I mean, 27, 21? Like that's some kind of weird futuristic movie where nothing makes sense. That's the type of time span we're talking about from when Isaiah is prophesying in, in these first chapters of Isaiah and when this fulfillment comes true in Jesus. And so our passage today is from Isaiah chapter 9. So it's right in between chapter 7 and chapter uh, 11 that we were just looking at. But it's in the same section talking about this future hope that we have, that God is going to do. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for those who are in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun in the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, and you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with heart at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, prince of peace his authority shall grow continually and there shall be endless peace for the throne of david and his kingdom he will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore 
the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This passage is interesting because it, 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 especially that part that we know, that we hear a lot at Christmas time, we may even read it at our Christmas Eve service, it, it talks about how this child is born for us, is given to us. This child is a special gift from God. And second, this passage tells us uh, that this child or this person shall embody these roles of wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and then also that his reign will last forevermore. That this isn't some just kind of earthly, he lived, he died, he's done, but his reign will last forevermore. All these are pretty significant statements. But since this Sunday's theme is peace, I wanted to focus on the Prince of Peace bit of this passage. So first I thought, you know, the word peace is a pretty common, simple word. We, we use it a lot. But let's look at some dictionary definitions of peace. And if you look it up, you'll likely find two main definitions of it just in the, in the normal dictionary. And the first definition is usually a freedom from disturbance. You know, whatever that disturbance might be from us. Freedom from the chaos of maybe kids or your husbands or your noisy neighbors or your, you know, the bad drivers on the road. No, but it's a sense of peace being the absence of being disturbed. We often hear the words peace and quiet together don't we i just want some peace and quiet and we may think that in a way peace is almost synonymous with quiet if something's peaceful you know like the the sleeping baby jesus in the manger we probably imagine that there's silence like silent night holy night all is calm all is bright but while silence you know it's it's often the environment best suited for peace it's not the same thing as peace. Or sometimes we may associate peace with kind of isolation or solitude or just kind of having some, some time to ourselves. And, you know, especially for parents, you, you value that time of peace with your, by yourselves. But peace is not isolation. And sometimes even the feeling of being isolated can be the very opposite of peace. It can be despairing at times. Peace is something different than just quiet or isolation or even just the freedom from disturbances. The second dictionary definition is typically a state or period free of conflict. As in, you know, the opposite of peace would be war. So if there's no war, then, you know, you'd be in a state of peace. That's usually the second dictionary definition that you see. And you may know of the, the period in Roman history known as the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana, it's a Latin phrase that means Roman peace. And ironically, this period of peace began with the reign of Caesar Augustus. Which if you're thinking about the Jesus story, that's the same Caesar Augustus that issued the, the proclamation that all should... Uh, that a census would be taken and all needed to go and be registered. And so Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem because of that proclamation. 
It's the same Caesar Augustus who his, his reign as emperor kind of started, began the Pax Romana. And it would extend for about 200 years. But, you know, we think about it, Jesus was crucified during that time. Christians were persecuted during the Pax Romana. So it wasn't necessarily a time of peace for everyone. It was just kind of a time of peace for the empire because that's when they were at their height. No one could really compete or bring any offense against Rome. So they didn't have any major conflicts or wars. So for Rome, it was Pax Romana, but not necessarily for, for everyone. It's fairly obvious to say that peace can be the absence of wars or conflict or even disturbances. But notice that these two primary just dictionary definitions describe peace only as the result of the absence of stuff, the absence of war, the absence of being uh, disturbed. When we talk about godly peace, we mean something more than that. There are two words, mainly two words in the Bible for peace. One is the Hebrew word that is used in the Old Testament, and the other is a Greek word used in the New Testament. And the Old Testament uh, Hebrew word for peace, you may already know. Anybody know it? Shalom. Okay, yep, yep, a few of y'all got it. So, shalom. So, if you know that, you're, already, you're on your way to being a, a biblical Hebrew scholar. So, you, if you get shalom right, that's peace in, in Hebrew. And the New Testament Greek word for peace is irene. Probably didn't know that one, but you might know the English word serene. And so if you kind of use the vowel uh, inflections a little different, you can kind of see the, the rene, the irene part. So the word serene, peaceful, you know, tranquil that we have in English comes from the Greek word for peace. Or if you know someone whose name is Irene, their name comes from the Greek word for peace, so that's what their name means. Anyway, side note. But different languages, if, if you work in translations at all, or if you, you know, take Spanish in high school or, or German, you know that there's certain nuances to words that maybe just don't quite carry over the same way once you put them in a different language. And so I wanted just to briefly look at, at these two words and provide a little more context. So shalom typically is always translated as peace and in the Old Testament it certainly can refer to the absence of conflict like how we use peace a lot today but its real and best meaning is not so much the absence of something but rather the presence of something shalom describes a state of wholeness and completeness and this doesn't even apply to just like, you know, our lives feeling whole. It can describe buildings. For example, after the temple had been constructed, it says three times a year Solomon used to burn up offering or used to offer up burnt offerings and sacrifices of well-being on the altar he had built for the Lord, offering incense before the Lord. So he completed the house. But that word completed is actually shalom. He shalomed the house. He, he completed, he filled it up, or he fulfilled the requirements. And so peace is this sense of being made complete, being made whole, being fulfilled, not lacking in anything. Well, there's another way that shalom can be used in the Old Testament. 
and it's to describe the sense of welfare or well-being. Um, thinking about King David, actually before he was King David, and before he went to battle against Goliath, if you remember, why did he even go to the battlefield where Goliath was? His father sent him there to check on his brothers. And in 1 Samuel 17, 18, it, it says, or his father says, see how your brothers fare. That's usually something like that is how our Bibles translate it. But the literal is to make a careful inspection of your brother's shalom, their peace, their, their sense of well-being. It means check on their welfare, check their, check their shalom, how are they doing? And another word, you know this one a lot, Jerusalem, that Salem part of the word Jerusalem is the word for peace. And so it's Jerusalem means kind of roughly foundation of peace or dwelling of peace or possession of peace. And so it's like it's the idea of the city of Jerusalem, it was supposed to be, kind of intended to be, this place from where Shalom dwelled and poured out from. But the problem was that often the nation and the kings and the people failed to live up to that calling. And the last thing I'll, I'll say about shalom, um, it can also refer to making amends or making restitution. It, it could mean to restore things to a right and, and complete state. It meant to reconcile and to heal broken relationships. Uh, for example, in Exodus 22, it describes, you know, this gets into kind of a lot of the laws, but it describes that if someone goes and steals someone else's animal, they are to go back and make shalom with that owner, that they are to make restitution. They are to pay back. They are to, you know, bring that completion back to that owner. It's the same word shalom. So shalom, or peace, again, is much more than simply the absence of conflict or the absence of disturbance. It's the presence of a kind of peace that fills and completes us, and it brings us to wholeness. There's nothing lacking. So Irene, we're going to flip over to the New Testament. I'm not going to spend as much time on this because it, Irene carries a lot of the, the Old Testament shalom um, nuances with it. It's a, it's a life-giving term. And it actually originates from the root word ero, which means to join or to bind together that which had been separated. So if we think about, you know, shalom, this idea of if something's separated, if we are going to make peace with something, we are going to bring it back to wholeness. That's, that's the idea behind the Greek word for peace. If there, there again is nothing lacking. So when we talk about peace, we know that peace is good. Right, just in our own lives, just day to day. We know that peace is good. World peace, you know, if, if somebody's going for a beauty pageant and they ask, you know, what, what are your hopes and dreams? I dream for world peace. You know, that's a good answer to say, right? But we know that peace is good in our relationships with other people, our neighbors, our family. We know that peace is desirable in our own lives, in our minds and in our hearts, so the question is, if we know it's so good, 
And it seems so kind of simple to us, just, yeah, peace. Why does it sometimes, or even maybe often, seem so much like a struggle to have peace? Peace in our world. Peace in our society. Peace with others. Peace in our own lives. Why is it so hard sometimes? You know, mental health these days is is a big topic. Anxiety, stress, depression, addictions, violence, theft, murders, suicides, school shootings, as we've seen on the news lately. And sometimes we struggle even how to articulate how we feel when we aren't at peace. We just feel frustrated, worried. We feel sad, confused maybe. Just a sense of dissatisfaction with life or sense of emptiness, hopelessness. But this idea of feeling incomplete, feeling torn and discontented and restless, those are all functions of our fallen human condition. So sometimes I wonder if the term mental health is the best category for these terms, if not all of them. Maybe the best category we should be thinking about is soul health, spiritual health. You know, if if you or I am not feeling at peace, not feeling whole or complete in our lives, well, it's likely because we are holding on to something that is not God. That we are wanting to control our own circumstances instead of putting ourselves under the sovereignty of God. Or maybe we're not willing to trust God. Or we don't have our minds set on the eternity that we have with God in Christ. The root problem that we have with, with having peace simply boils down to sin. Sin is, is kind of one of the simplest ways that I, I like to describe sin. It's just brokenness. We are broken. Our world is broken. You know, anything from just our actions to even diseases, things that this world is not supposed to be this way. Our world is broken. And so where shalom or irene or peace is this state of completeness or wholeness or unity, sin is the state of being incomplete, of being broken, of being fractured or fragmented. It breaks us apart. I've been uh, reading a book. I'm, not, I'm only halfway done with it, so I can't give a, a full book recommendation on it yet. But so far, I've liked it. Uh, the author is a Presbyterian minister in California named John Ortberg. You might have heard that name. He's, he's written a number of things. But he has a book called Soul Keeping. And so far, it's been a really insightful book. But it's, it's about this concept of, of the soul. What, what is the soul? You know, how can we kind of categorize that, especially in our world today, when everything's more just kind of scientific and observation, what is the soul? And he says this about the soul. Your soul is what integrates, what connects, what binds together your will, then your mind, and then your body. God designed us so that our choices, our thoughts, and our desires, and our behavior would be in perfect harmony with each other and would be powered by an unbroken connection with God in perfect harmony with him and with all his creation. 
That is a well-ordered soul. This idea of being complete within ourselves, our desires, our, our will, our bodies, our minds, being in line with God. But he says what sin does is breaks this connection with God and his love, and it disintegrates one's life. He says that's why the basic human problem is at the soul level. The Apostle Peter got at this too. He said sinful desires wage war against our souls. If we remember how Paul struggled with sin, saying, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin within me. Can you feel this sense of he feels broken, that he's not even in control of his own actions? What he wants to happen is not what he's actually being able to do. He's conflicted. And so Ortberg also says this about sin. Sin eventually destroys enjoyment, let alone meaning. It distorts my perceptions, alienates my relationships, inflames my desires, and enslaves my will. Sin fractures and shatters the soul. I just thought that was a, an interesting description of what sin is. But what our souls really need what our souls crave and long for, I think ultimately, is peace. How do we find this peace? Because whether we think about it or not, I think our souls are always restless, restlessly seeking out things that will bring it peace. And it's a frivolous search if, they are, if our souls are trying to find peace in anything other than God. I like how the psalmist in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2 says it. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. As the universe seeks this state of equilibrium, so our souls seek a state of peace, of shalom, of wholeness. But if it's in anything other than God that we're searching for that in, we'll never have that peace that God talks about. Augustine of Hippo, you might have heard this quote, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. So what's the, what's the solution here? What's the, the missing puzzle piece, as it were, to our broken lives? Well, it's the good Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. If sin is the root problem, Jesus is the Prince of Peace and is the ultimate solution. As the, the Peanuts character, I don't know if anybody started watching your, your Christmas shows yet, but as Linus reminds us every Christmas in Luke's account of the, the, the uh, birth of Jesus when the angel appears to the shepherds who tended their flock by night, the angel said, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace 
among those whom he favors. Jesus entered the world that we would have peace for our souls. Jesus is the one whom Isaiah is referring to in the passage when he says, For a child has been born for us and a son given to us. Authority rests on his shoulders and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace for us. Jesus is the Prince of Peace because God is the God of Peace. Peace is a characteristic of God and and this is kind of mainly why I gave you all those sheets because I wanted you all to see how prevalent this kind of theme of peace is in not only our lives but in describing God um, God's or the Lord Yahweh God is described as peace in judges and uh, the apostle Paul describes the God of peace many times in the New Testament and this probably in the, an exhaustive list, list like I say I thought about this kind of late last night and so it's sort of thrown together but it's just some of the the occurrences of the Apostle Paul and other places where it talks about God being the God of peace. And he, he's the God of peace because he sent his son to bear our sins on the cross that we would be made righteous through Christ and reconciled to God. So peace for us is a gift from God. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. If you look in Galatians, peace is a gift to us from God through Christ. And as Jesus told his disciples on the night before he was crucified, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. It's a gift that we're given. And it's something that fills us. So it's not the absence of things, but it's actually something that dwells within us and fills us. It fills our souls. And there's no greater peace than to know that you are wholly loved by God. So God's peace through Christ applies to us on three levels. Maybe more, but these are the three I thought about. The first level, in Christ, we have peace with God. Just like our assurance of forgiveness from earlier, from Romans uh, chapter 5, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And like I put on the sheets, there's, there's other places where it talks about how in Christ we have peace with God. That relationship that we broke with God has been restored to us through Christ. And the second um, application of this peace, in Christ we have peace with one another. There is a common bond, a common bond of peace that binds us together. Verses to support. I'm not going to read all these verses. I know that gets tedious. But the last point I wanted to make that in Christ, we also have peace with ourselves. That restless, endless search for other things to try to fill our lives, we don't have to do that chasing anymore. We have Christ. In Christ, we have contentment and joy, even in the midst of affliction. It's an important note to say that, you know, godly peace is not being completely removed from conflict or even chaos. We know those things are just a natural part of our broken and fallen world. God's peace is different because it's not the removal of conflict or disruption, but it's the filling and the satisfying of one's soul completely. 
as Jesus also told his disciples, I have said this to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you may face affliction or distress, but take courage for I have conquered the world. Jesus knew that they were going to continue to endure hardship. That's not the kind of peace he was talking about. He was talking about this peace that comes through knowing Christ. And so lastly, what, what's, what's our call? You know, if we walk out these doors, what then? Well, having received God's peace through Christ, we are called to first just embrace God's peace. Let God's peace wash over us. And then share God's peace and work for God's peace. So to embrace it, I mean, that is to release, you know, this tight grip of control that we often try to maintain on our lives. You know, it requires us setting our idols aside. It requires us to just embrace God's great love for us, for each and every one of you. And when we do that, then we can share God's peace, the peace of Christ with others, to extend peace communally amongst you know your families your neighbors your church your friends your co-workers your students you know if you're a teacher or administrator or your classmates being filled with God's peace allows us to share God's peace and then lastly to work for God's peace in the world you know, this is, to kind of, this is to have a vision for God's mission in the world, whether it's here in Katy, whether it's in the greater Houston area or Texas or in some other state or internationally. We know that there are so many things in this world that are broken. There are so many needs out there. But what can we do to work for the restoration and reconciliation and healing in the name of Jesus Christ? Because he is the Prince of Peace. In this season of Advent leading up to Christmas, let us give thanks to the Prince of Peace, in whom we have peace with God, we have peace with one another, and we have peace with ourselves. So I'll end with Colossians 3, which encourages us, above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. Amen.